Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 174, End of the Bottle. Last time out, we watched the Whiskey Rebellion escalate as a force of 7,000 insurgents gathered to march on Pittsburgh at the start of August 1794. With our historical perspective, we can tell that this was clearly the high point of the rebellion. People were unhappy and frustrated, but were largely leaderless and had no clear objectives. So, while the 7,000 gathered, they didn't actually accomplish anything, just sort of dissolved. This was followed up two weeks later by an assembly, where the moderates held sway. However, from the perspective at the time, all the federal government could see was the continued ratcheting up of the situation. All with a backdrop of the war in Europe, the threat of the British and Spanish along the frontier, and concern over whether Kentucky would try and secede from the Union, or attempts to invade New Orleans, in an effort to gain navigation rights on the Mississippi. This led Washington to issue a proclamation, ordering the insurgents to disperse, and calling out the militia. This would give the president three weeks to find a peaceable solution, something which would help secure the support of Pennsylvania Governor Thomas Mifflin. As an aside, while I've not been able to find a direct source on this, it does appear that yes, Dunder Mifflin is named after Thomas Mifflin. If peace had not been achieved by September 1st, then Washington and Hamilton would turn to military options. This is where we ended things last time out. Washington sent a commission to Pennsylvania, made up of the Attorney General William Bradford, the Supreme Court Justice Jasper Yeats, and Senator James Ross, with broad authority to end the rebellion on August 7th. This, on the face of it, seems like quite the gesture, but the commissioners had a few restrictions on what they could offer. Principally, they should not commit to ending the excise tax, nor to prosecution in local courts. Considering the grievances of the insurgents, I think it's fair to say this was a significant impediment. This is a view reflected amongst historians. Richard H. Cohn wrote that it was, quote, a shaky commitment, more a tactic than a policy, and indicative more of the president's uncertainty and fear than of a belief that force could be avoided. End quote. Thomas P. Slaughter wrote, quote, President Washington shared Hamilton's belief that the use of force was inevitable, even before the commissioners left on their journey. End quote. I cannot help but agree. The commissioners met with delegates from the rebels, offering amnesty in exchange for a restoration of order. There were some encouraging signs for the commissioners. The moderate faction appears to be gaining ground, as demonstrated by the fact that the flag of the independence movement was not raised to greet them. But there were certain individuals who the commission felt would not submit. By August 23rd, Bradford was writing to Hamilton, advising him to begin preparing for the use of force, regardless of how the negotiations continued. And Hamilton seemed set on the use of force. 
Hamilton wrote anonymous letters to Philadelphia newspapers saying the insurgents were part of a plot to overthrow the government and referring to them as anarchists intent on treason against society, against liberty, against everything that ought to be dear to a free, enlightened and prudent people. Hamilton ordered the governor of Virginia, Henry Lee, to start preparing to command the expedition by secretly recruiting an army. The orders were post-dated to September 1st, and Hamilton urged Lee to keep this secret, as so not to undermine the public image that Washington was making every effort for peace, although Hamilton didn't give Lee much advice on how exactly to hide recruiting a 13,000-strong army. While duplicitous, it is worth remembering that Hamilton and Washington did have some legitimate reasons for acting like this. Washington had plenty of experience of what it was like commanding an army through winter, and with September fast approaching, he wanted to be able to resolve the matter as quickly as possible. So the commissioners continued negotiating, and a meeting was organised at Redstone Old Fort for August 28th and 29th, which ended with a secret ballot, which voted 34 to 33 in favour of accepting the Peace Commissioner's proposals, although six would later claim to have voted in mistake. A commission of 12 was selected to make further modifications to the Commissioner's requests, and a public vote was scheduled for September 11th. The vote was close enough, and given the characters involved, that the Commissioners were at this point convinced the peace had failed. Justice Yeats and Attorney General Bradford departed on September 3rd, with Senator Brops remaining to administer the public vote, thinking that this would make later prosecution easier. Some townships on September 11th voted in favour of submission. Cross Creek Township voted 170-0. Derry Township voted 139-3. But this was not uniform. Franklin Township voted for resistance, and the list of those who voted for submission was destroyed for the safety of the individuals concerned. Others left their own townships to vote for submission in more peaceful ones, again fearing for their safety. The moderates thought they needed just another week and they could resolve the situation. It was clear they could not resist the power of the federal government, and people were coming round to that. But the federal government was not convinced of their sincerity. If fear was a motivating factor, then surely an army would help restore the people to their proper allegiances. The army, 12,950 strong, had reached the eastern edge of resistance by late September. It was nicknamed the Watermelon Army by the rebels. The first death occurred on September 29th, when a force of dragoons were rounding up the suspects, including a sick boy. He declared his inability to stand, as well as his innocence, and without leave, he attempted to go into a house. He was ordered to stop, and if he could not stand, then to sit or lay down. The horseman watching him cocked his pistol, which then went off as the boy was laying himself down, killing him. A second death followed two days later, when a drunk civilian named Charles Boyd was harassing a group of soldiers. He was arrested but resisted, attempting to grab a private's weapon. 
During the fight, he was accidentally stabbed with the bayonet and died. Washington expressed grief, but it heightened tensions. There was some resistance, with Carlisle, Pennsylvania and Hagerstown, Maryland being notable examples. Kentucky and North Carolina were too remote for any show of law enforcement, and for the most part, the residents were brought back in line. While the actions taken by the insurgents was in the tradition of the American Revolution, the fact that opponents now had American nationalism to unify them seemed to be the crucial factor in how communities were able to repress these elements, when, during earlier periods, the rebels had dominated and driven the country to independence against Britain. The army, with all the problems of recruitment and discipline that the government had to deal with, was able to control the situation and push westwards. Washington reviewed the army at Carlisle on October 4th, where he met several insurgent representatives who urged him to keep the army there. Washington demurred and headed to Maryland to review the southern wing of the army. On October 20th, Governor Henry Lee of Virginia was placed in command, and Washington returned to Philadelphia. By late October, it was clear that the rebels would not form an army to face federal forces in battle. Suspects were rounded up, but it was very difficult to distinguish between insurgents and sympathetic civilians. They were treated brutally. At least one person died from exposure to the cold. These suspects and witnesses were then interrogated by Hamilton and the judges. They were looking for specific individuals to form examples of, but found it difficult. Many had taken Washington's offer of amnesty, and the committed rebels, such as Bradford and perhaps 2,000 others, had retreated to the deep wilderness, leaving moderates such as Brackenridge. During these interrogations, Hamilton realised how the relationship between the moderates and extremists had been mischaracterised, remarking, Had we listened to some people, I do not know what we might have done. The end result was about 20 people were held to blame for the rebellion. These were minor figures. Several were farmers, described by their neighbours as simple which we would describe as having mental disabilities. Certainly incapable of orchestrating a vast conspiracy to overthrow the government. On the 19th of November, the army began to return home. The captured rebels were held for between four and six months. Two were convicted of treason, both were pardoned by Washington, and the rest acquitted. A force of 1,500 remained in Pittsburgh to maintain order over the winter months and so the Whiskey Rebellion was brought to a close. So, what are we to make of all that? What did it mean? One of the main reasons for me running this podcast is to get into the complexities of the American story. In a simplistic telling, the story often jumps over great periods of time going straight from the Revolution to the Civil War. I wanted to highlight the bits that get skipped over, and the Whiskey Rebellion is a brilliant example of how complex the story really is. We are seven years out from the Constitutional Convention, and we have a clear example of Americans protesting, in a very American tradition, 
against the fruits of the revolution. People were struggling and felt abandoned by the federal government. We have Washington and Hamilton trying to enforce a social hierarchy where people should know their place, using government to oppress protesters by force. It doesn't exactly fit with popular understandings of them. The Whiskey Rebellion highlights two key things which will be important for our story. The first is a long-term factor, the plight of the frontier. By 1794, the frontier was already moving to the west beyond Pennsylvania, and some local factors behind the rebellion, such as a lack of access to the Mississippi, would soon be resolved. The frontier was fundamentally astonishingly difficult. Far from the romantic ideal, it can often be portrayed as. This will appear throughout our story. The second factor is more immediate, and that is the Federalist-Democratic split. The approach taken by Washington and Hamilton in this. Using the power of central government to enforce taxes a local population couldn't pay helped exacerbate a division that was forming. Jefferson and Madison had a different vision of how the federal government should work and which aspects of society should be listened to. The people and farmers, not elites and merchants. This would ultimately help drive Jefferson's Democratic Republicans, which would, in time, destroy the Federalist faction of Washington and Hamilton. But that's all for the future. And so we shall end things here for this week. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.